0: This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go, 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 go. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations
1: this master brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by hopsteiner a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality sustainability and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop related tools you need to craft your next great beer for more information visit hopsteiner.com
2: One day after sitting through some scheduling meeting, I'm like, look, tomorrow I will come in and I will open a bottom valve of a tank. You better make sure it's empty.
0: What if you could postpone buying new fermenters by reducing variability during fermentation? This week on the show, you'll hear about how this was accomplished at New Belgium while eliminating inaccurate measurements like yeast cell counts and viability.
2: Hey, I'm Peter Bukert. um, I'm the... Owner, brewmaster at uh, Purpose Brewing in Fort Collins, Colorado.
0: Peter, you were the brewmaster at New Belgium for over two decades. When a brewery that big needs to install additional fermenters, what does that cost? Are we talking millions, tens of millions,
2: or what? That's a good question. Um, It's... It's actually mentioned uh, we had a total expansion cost of $8 million that we were looking at. Um, this was a bit more than fermenters as such. Um, it was the building for the fermenters. It was some processing stuff that was going to go underneath it. And I basically said, no, we don't need this um, right now. And so I moved it to $2 million, uh, four years later as an investment cost. I'm
0: sure that made some people happy.
2: Yeah, um, it made a lot of people scared also because um, everybody felt a need for more tanks and um, said I need to deal with variation first.
0: Nobody wants to take on the cost and hassle of an expansion if they don't have to, but a lot of us, as you kind of indicated, have felt that summer capacity squeeze when there's no room for error. I'm guessing you've probably felt that pressure on multiple occasions during your career.
2: Yeah, that was my life in New Belgium. It was always somewhere that a bottleneck was uh, popping up, sometimes two bottlenecks at once throughout the process. Uh, um, And you try to maximize the yield of that bottleneck. It's been really a fun period because everything has been a bottleneck from grain storage to um, cold uh, storage, finished product, and everything in between.
0: You set out to reduce variability in fermentation times, which has some obvious quality benefits as well. Talk about where you started and where you wanted to go.
2: So I initially started um, with a variation on uh, one brand um, that was a major brand. There was a standard deviation of 22 hours. This was total tank time, so it was from fill to fill. Um, and I uh, will adapt my measurement through time. but So it was huge. 22 hours is basically means that you have a certainty within six days that the tank is going to be empty. Uh, um, so it, this was not workable, and that's why we wanted to do an investment. I said, oh, we need to reduce that variation so that we, can, uh, uh, we don't need those tanks at all. Makes sense. And
0: what did you think you could get it to? What was your goal?
2: My goal, I set from the get-go to a standard deviation of three hours, something I never uh, reached.
0: So where did you start? Did you already have the right data, or did you actually have to change what you were measuring?
2: Um, the data was produced um, by somebody who did scheduling, and so he used that as an argument for tank utilization or needing more tanks. And so let's dig deeper in, um, in the data. And So, so first... I really focused on the scheduling. People in scheduling were brewing any fermenter that came empty. They were brewing it full and being afraid that they wouldn't have enough beer. So this was a Six Sigma project, but sometimes the uh, fruit is really low hanging. So one day after sitting in through some scheduling meeting, I'm like, look, tomorrow I will come in and I will open a bottom valve of a tank. You better make sure it's empty. (laughs) <laughs> so they're like and so they're like well that's impossible i said it is possible you're just gonna have to stop brewing or whatever you do but i will open a valve from whatever tank you say and so i started doing that and it, it was kind of a little breakthrough moment that you had to kind of enforce because at that point people were <laughs> right away like oh now it's easy i don't have to wait because i have a tank available so that was my goal and so the standard deviation was reduced there from twenty-two hours to twelve hours just by those simple means. And by saying I need a tank. Available. I need the tank open, empty at any given time.
0: All right. What happened next?
2: Yeah, so um, once we had that resolved, I needed to really look where the fermentation variability came from. Um, and so therefore we needed to put up some definitions on what uh, are we going to use exactly as a measurement Because different people are going to measure this data. So we need to have the standard uh, on how to do it. And so what we agreed upon was um, that the moment the first brew goes into the fermenter, measured by the moment of all, goes open, to, um, until I, to when diacetyl is low enough for that brand to crash down this tank. So we had two different measurements here. We had a measurement that was based, that we could retrace, uh, based on our uh, measurement, um, or MES basically, or sorry, our PLCs. Um, we had a process historian, so we could look back at any given time for years in the past on when did this valve go open for brew number ten thousand nine hundred thirty-three going to fermenters seven. Um, so we measured that opening valve. We also measured the accuracy in between different people, and it came down to within a couple of minutes so for a process this was going to be around 80 to 100 an hour, a couple of minutes was accurate second part was a bit more difficult because there we needed to measure um, when are we going to cool down the tank and we did that based initially we did it based on a, um, a vdk via distilling and throughout the process we measured it we changed it to the with gc so here we have a lab measurement that is taken offline um and that we're gonna um, get in a couple of hours or a couple of time uh, after a while we're gonna get some data of it and we do not have a lab that is staffed 24 hours a day so um if i put up a certain target there in vdk it will cost 80 to crash so we created a, a curve, basically how fast is this VDK dropping in the last 24 hours of this brand um, during the end of fermentation, and we use that as a prediction model. So I hope I explained that well. So the curve, if we came up the VDKs are 255. Um, well, then we said, okay, it's going to take us around 10 hours before we can pull that tank. So the lab went to the fermenter and put the cooling down time uh, 10 hours out from the moment they took the cell.
0: Makes sense. Now, um, let's explain to some folks, there's probably a lot of smaller breweries out there that, you know, don't have and maybe don't know what a process historian is. So why don't you explain that, if you don't mind?
2: Yeah, so this is... Um I'm working in a whole different scale brewery now, and I apply those things anyway. And um, so process historian, um, in an automated brewery, you have PLCs who are going to measure stuff in the process. And then that is an input for the PLC, and it's going to give output. So you make the... the, Once I reach uh, 155 Fahrenheit in my mash, Shut down the steam valve. So the output, the input is the 155 uh, Fahrenheit, sorry, um, and the output is actuate the pneumatic cylinder to close that valve. So, but so then the process historian is capturing any of those data. So if it's an on-off situation, it captures it in zero or ones. If it's a temperature, it will store that temperature. Um, and so, in the case of New Belgium, we had a pretty good uh, data storage. From whenever we captured that, started capturing that data point, as well far or this temperature or this pressure, uh, we had it for pretty much eternity until we said uh, we didn't want it anymore.
0: Now, uh, does that process, Historian, only, um, only log data from the PLC, or is, is there also input going in there, like, for example, the VDK values, the results from lab tests, things like that?
2: It only did the PLC.
0: Okay. Um, all right. Well, so essentially, uh, it seems like you've you kind of already had the data that you needed. You just needed to analyze it to, to really utilize it, right?
2: Yes. So um, I had to first work on measurement system analysis. So basically any measurement, um, if you measure a temperature probe, what is the accuracy of this temperature probe? um how will i verify it or calibrate it what is my calibration regime How is my verification uh, regime if it's an lab measurement you got or if it's a yeast count measurement for instance yeast count is interesting Um how when you will only use that measurement if it's an accurate reproducible measurement uh, and so yeast cell count is really hard because different people were doing yeast cell count and to us it, when we do it we're doing a measurement system analysis i want to see a resolution of 10. that brings us maybe a little bit far but what i mean there i want to have uh, within the range that i want to measure if i want to measure between 5 and 20 million cells per milliliter i want to have 10 distinct zones so my accuracy of the measurement needs to be so precise that i can say okay it's between uh, five and six and a half it's between six and a half and eight and i'm sure about this measurement
0: okay well tell us about some of the other types of measurements you were taking
2: yeast temperature so no yeast volume okay now i have to deal with the flow meter how accurate is a flow meter how can i show that a flow meter is accurate at different temperatures and at different uh when there's gas in solution so we had to basically start uh we coupled all our different flow meters together and we were sending different liquids in it and we're looking how far they were far uh, um, off from each other and so we didn't do an absolute calibration on this one but we did a verification that all our flow meters were reading in a similar uh, uh, area if it's um uh, the vdk or cell count measurement at that point that was hilarious the cell count we had a we didn't take sampling errors in account but we had a a paint uh, mixer in a bucket and then we had of yeast and then we had different people randomly taking samples from different buckets uh, so within a different range and repeat those measurements to see how accurate we were um over um, basically the different uh, ranges of measurements i mean cell counts but also um, uh, over different people and so that one we never have been able to prove that cell count was a measurement that was worthwhile for us to pursue
0: and i assume you're talking about the traditional hemocytometer type of cell count
2: right yes yes Uh, uh, because the accuracy that we were wanted was way too high for what we could produce with this measurement. So we had to find a different measurement. There, so.
0: Okay, we'll talk, talk more about that. Um, what, what, uh, what was your solution for that? Did you go to work with the solometer or some other type of device? Or what did you end up doing there?
2: uh was not or we didn't have it i don't think it was out at that point Um, we had another um, bit more primitive device but i was kind of doing the the count for you Um, but that didn't um, give us good results so we did that at the same time so we did uh, cell count um, this automated counting system but we also did a spin down so a centrifuge spin down uh, on those samples so, we did that all on the same measurement. So, it was basically a whole day that we had um, different people trying to get that measurement. Um, to produce the data to prove it, the measurement was uh, um, fine enough or not. And from those data, only uh, spin down volume uh, was something that was reproducible enough and repeatable enough to, to be used. Um, I kind of had proven that already from uh, going back to data, I never found cell count to be relevant. So uh, we switched then to spin down volume. So uh, we had our yeast storage tank on a mixing loop. So as an operator, you come in, it mixes for a while, then you take your sample, you bring it to the lab, you pour it in a, a valve, you spin it down in the lab centrifuge. And then three minutes later, you measure uh, how much solids you have versus liquid. And that was the only one that was for us reproducible enough, uh, sorry, repeatable enough um, to be a worthwhile measurement.
0: And I, I believe you said you, you saw, um, what was it, something like a three times, uh, a threefold increase in the resolution versus uh, the, the previous method?
2: Yeah, so on the cell count, we only had a precision to total or a resolution. So resolution of around five. So that means you could basically say within the range that we required that it was low, uh, sorry, very low, low, medium, uh, high, or very high. And that was not okay uh, enough to start modeling that. So we switched it to um, the slurry spin down volume, and there we had a resolution of 50. It was way back. Coming up. Glycol has so much thermal mass, especially in smaller tanks, that you need to increase your temperature to compensate for it.
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
1: Support for this podcast is brought to you by Bring the world to your brew house with BSG's diverse selection of ingredients and services. Our dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Make BSG your supplier of choice with products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. Visit us at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. And thanks also to... Malt Europe Malting Company is a leading supplier of craft malt across North America. As a farmer-owned company, Malt Europe has carefully crafted quality malt from locally grown barley for decades. The result? A portfolio of base, specialty, and distillers malts that exceed the exacting standards of craft brewers. Learn more and buy online at MaltEuropeMaltingCo.com.
0: Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewer's Calendar. District New England meets at Northwoods Brewing October 11th. District Philly goes to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair October 12th. New Hampshire Brewfest 2019 is October 12th in Portsmouth. District Pittsburgh meets October 15th. District Michigan meets at Arbor Brewing October 17th. District St. Louis meets October 17th. And the brand new District Georgia is holding its first annual pig roast October 19th at Monday Night Brewing in Atlanta. District Mid-Atlantic meets October 19th at Union Craft Brewing in Baltimore. Registration is now open for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference in Calgary. Be sure to tack on a couple of extra days to enjoy some amazing hiking and make the 45-minute trip to Banff, which is one of the most picturesque places on the planet. Immediately following the conference is the world-famous Master Brewers 2-Week Brewing and Malting Science course in Madison, Wisconsin. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Did you uh, Did you want to say anything else about the VDK measurement? I think you already kind of described that curve and everything. Was there anything else you wanted to say about that, or you think we're good there?
2: We had the VDKs was kind of a hard one because we to calibrate to form that uh, reduction curve in a fermenter. We had to do two or three. Uh, measurements on the same fermenter. So we actually had people coming in at night during the period to do the measurements so that we could um, uh, reproduce this or show this curve of the VDK drop, who's a kind of a log curve, or uh, it's, it's exponential, basically. Um, when the VDKs are high, a reduction goes faster than when the VDKs are low.
0: Makes sense. There's some other data related to yeast that's not so easy to analyze. Talk about that.
2: The yeast is in control by the brewer. You know how much you abuse it. You know how good it fermented in the previous fermentation, and there's so much relevant data in how it did in the previous fermentation, and in our case also we, for instance, had one um liquid ring pump that uh, if the yeast came from too far it didn't have very good suction and it was actually heating up the yeast so heating up the yeast i didn't have a measurement for it because it didn't have the temperature probe but i could forecast that if we harvested this tank with this pump we probably have heated the yeast because it was not going to flow
0: interesting Okay, we've talked about all the measurements. Tell us what was important once you started building the model.
2: So now I start looking at the data that I produce. So my measurements are okay. So I trust the data. So now I'm starting looking at those data. And I do it through modeling. So I'm inputting those um, uh, data in in different ways. And I'm trying to predict uh, what the fermentation time is going to be. And then I see how far it's off. And so what is really creating the variation? The and then what is the best predictor also for fermentation time as such? And then there's two major buckets. Here I'm only looking at data that are produced within the fermentation that I'm looking at. And so I'm not gonna look on how the yeast did in the previous fermentation. I'm just gonna look how much yeast we how fast it heated up, blah blah blah. But I'm not looking Uh, to the data that I have from the previous fermentation. And so I have three groups of data. The green ones are the start of fermentation conditions, so there I have how warm was that fermenter after I put the first brew in it? How warm was it after the second brew? What was the temperature of the tank before the beer comes in? So basically that looks at the thermal mass of the glycol and um, stainless who's worse for smaller tanks. So uh, in my case, now in the four-barrel brew house, this is way more difficult, way more important variable than it is in a, a new Belgium tank where you do 14 or 1200 barrels. Uh, and the number of brews I'm going to put in that for me. I also look at exo- exothermic uh, ta- uh, times, I call it. So I look, how fast is this tank heating up? And I'm going to use that to predict on when to cool down that time. And I also used uh, yeast-related data, generation, viability, cell count, and yeast uh, for you. So then I start modeling, and I do different models because I cannot throw so many variables in one model. So I start picking some, and uh, I'm seeing, okay, the number of blues it doesn't seem to matter the number the viability doesn't really seem to matter too much in the model uh, but what I saw is that some of those variables are really way more have way more information in them for a model to predict and so what I found that uh, was in somewhere yeast related somewhere exothermic temperatures uh, or time sorry. And somewhere related to the start of fermentation, and so here you see that uh, the amount of yeast I pitched was the key variable. Uh, second was how fast does that heat? Um, um, sorry, what is the temperature of knockout in the from measured in the on the probe on the fermenter after the second uh, brew? Very, 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 very important variable because there's way more going in. Brewers tend to look at the temperature probe at the heat exchanger, and that's useless. Come back to that. Uh, And then uh, how much time uh, did it take? Uh, uh, Sorry, yeah, this is time. It took until the fermenter reached 60 degrees C.
0: As you analyzed all this data, you realized that the individual variables were way less important than their interactions. Can you explain that a bit more?
2: yeah so it's always easy as a human if i change this knob uh, this variable if i pitch more what is the effect and typically that effect is very variable because if i come in and i knock into a fermenter that is colder um, the effect could be nil because i don't take that in account so i had to start looking at how much do i pitch and how warm was that fermented before the brew came in and so uh, that's the the beauty about modeling is that you can start looking at multiple variables uh, at a time and so you get three-dimensional or more dimensional graphs where you see okay if i pitch a little bit less and i start to lower my knockout temperature a little bit in a zone that i can control it better uh, and then um it, I don't know what other variable, and I'm only going to do three brews in that fermenter, um, I get a standard deviation uh, on my fermentation time that is minimal compared to when I pitch more yeast or come in warmer into the fermenter. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. It does.
2: So in, uh, now, um, at this point, I had figured out what the m- key variables are, and so now I'm gonna do a full-fledged uh, design of experiments uh, on uh, trying to fix a whole bunch of parameters, uh, fix the pos- position of the moon, for instance, um, and uh, then I'm gonna vary vary a couple of parameters. In this case. Uh, I was playing with two different um, variables that I was uh, changing and I basically put them only in two positions, I put them in a high and a low. So if you look at the knockout temperature, it looks like I knocked out uh, at 13.5C at 15C for design of experiment one and then I put the uh, pitching rate. This is a weird variable because I use the spin down volume times the volume pitch divided by the heck liters, uh that went into the fermenters. And I put that low and high. I do five repetitions and I randomize those. So I'm going to do a low, low. I'm going to do a high, low. I'm going to do a low, low. I'm going to do a high, high. I completely randomized that. So that was uh, an issue for the bluish to execute on. It um, was a hard one. And I chose only one set of tanks, um, and within that set of tanks, actually specific tanks, because I had some cooling issues with certain tanks, um, and I only did tremendous that I did six in. Okay, cool. Um, so, what'd you find out? So... Um, what I found out is, so first I looked at those data. Okay, so if I did this, if we set those variables at this set point, we turned the knob to um, high pitch, but what did they actually pitch? Um, or I turned the knob to low temperature knockout, but what was the temperature actually? Temperature actually, what when it came into the tank? And so looking back to those data, I saw that uh, there was some variability. Um, was due to um, basically fluctuate uh, the major variable was it took me two months to do this full-fledged doe and so the, the outside temperatures in colorado were cooling down so my fermenters were colder at the moment i came in but okay i found that back so i saw that uh, it was a confounding variable but uh, it wasn't overall not that big um so then when i looked at the data it produced um, I found that if I pitched lower and I pitched um, at a lower, uh, sorry, at a higher knockout temperature, I had the lowest standard deviation. So my standard deviation went to two hours if I put those uh, two parameters uh, low and high, basically. So Of course, your fermentation is going to be shorter if I pitch more and if I uh, knock out uh, faster, but it led to more variation and that meant that I was going to have to buy more tanks. And I didn't want to buy more tanks.
0: I guess talk about the the improvements then.
2: Yeah, so there were a lot through time um, variables, but uh, so we started looking at instead of the temperature probe, Post the heat exchanger, we started looking at the temperature probe in the fermenter. That meant that we had to calibrate all those probes in the fermenter because I knew some were 0.3C off because I saw for slower um, faster fermentations. But it was the temperature in the fermentation that was driving the, the PNID loop on the heat exchanger. So, kind of an interesting one to change. It's so much easier if you can look at, um, oh, we, I need the temperature proposed fermenter. but the glycol has so much thermal mass, especially in smaller tanks, that you need to increase your temperature to compensate for that. And then second is that the amount of yeast that you pitch and the temperature of that yeast is also significant for cooling down the first brew, so you need to raise the temperature of the first brew knocking out
0: um I, I assume you were pitching were you pitching all yeast in that first brew
2: yes yeah mostly sometimes not but okay but then you compensate for the next pitch um so that was the first one we had to increase our knockout temperature for the generation one initially i didn't use generation one because it came in at a lower sub count and it was so variable but by giving it a little bit temperature advantage, it actually started marching along. So I forget how much it was, but it was one degree C or something warmer for first gen. And at that point, those fermentations were doing uh, pretty much the same what other fermentations were gonna do. We initially fermented in a certain set of fermenters. That was kind of a funny one. Certain fermenters didn't cool down uh, or had a variable cool down time. And so to compensate for that, we just chose not to ferment only mature in those tanks. Later on we figured out you know, somebody in our lab who was working with those data figured out that the uh, glycol valves were wrong coupled. So we thought that uh, we were opening the upper jacket and it was actually the makeup jacket of the ferment tank. And the reverse. Wow. So uh, after after we corrected that, uh, it was good. Um, we could use those fermented. There was one other thing: there was a glycol. We were chilling in between fermentation and, ch- and maturation, and the, that glycol chiller had a pump that was pulling from the same line of a certain set of tanks, and so it created pressure drop. So my cooling time in those tanks was a little bit long when we were chilling. Okay, every brewery is a little bit more complicated than uh, what you see at first sight. Then we stopped using viability because viability was a random number generator. I was only measuring in 80 to 100% and it basically was not a measurement that was accurate enough. We literally had a precision to total of one, which means there's yeast or there's no yeast. And so compensating for that uh, in pitching rate was basically useless. So, we started compensating for that with the heat-up time of the previous fermentation uh, from that yeast. um, And so, um, we were pitching slightly less if we had fast heat-up rate in the previous fermentation. So, using a temperature ramp-up or a temperature probe instead of a useless measurement, Metal in blue. Um, we switched to spin down uh, for yeast measurements, spin down in the lab centrifuge instead of uh, doing, doing cell count. We pitched slightly less uh, because we just saw from that design of experiment that that was used for reducing the standard and we changed the knockout temperature based on seasonal fluctuations. We found that to be easier to do. So when we started seeing the fermentation time creeping up um, towards um, October, November, we just uh, changed the knockout target to get 0.5 c to compensate for the thermal mass of tank and glycol.
0: How, how much did you say you had to change it?
2: It's 0.5 in increments of 0.5. So sometimes we change. We went up to 1.5 C in total, but we did it in so 0.5 C.
0: Got it. This project had pretty serious financial implications, which you already mentioned a little bit. But give us give us the numbers.
2: Yeah. So so we were talking about a capital expenditure of eight million dollars, and we didn't do that. We came in incremental. But the first investment came uh, two, uh, two million, four years later. And So we postponed basically uh, eight million four um, and changed it to two million, and we, I didn't have a, a capital gain. It was basically a saving on a uh, loan um, that I could reduce for a time. I had to do that as a Six Sigma project, and so you could only be checked out as a black belt if you saved $1 million. But we were only a $30 million brewery at that point, so saving $1 million in a $30 million, uh, brewery was kind of a hefty task. So that's why I tackled this. Well. well, you can see also this is not a, a project that. Uh, was over one night ice um, be i chose something very difficult but i chose it because i needed to find out knowing. um i didn't know i was going to end up in scheduling initially but let be data driven uh, resolve where the data are driving that da- driving you to and yeah it's fun to work on fermentation time and on yeast viability and so on but if scheduling is the issue resolve scheduling yeah, it's maybe not my expertise, but just do it. And uh, you, uh, you uh, as a brewer, typically you have an analytical approach. Uh, schedulers maybe don't have it, and so apply your analytical approach on whatever the subject is. And we did a six-month uh, six project on uh, accounting on how can we reduce the days before, uh, of closing the month. From eleven to five days. What's in, in the way to gather data um, to close the month financially? Yeah, well, do it data driven. Accounting is not going to do it because they talk in sense; they don't talk and stand immediately. <laughs> yeah, and so you can apply those same tools in different uh, areas, but be data driven and follow the data. Don't follow your. Um, sometimes you need to follow your instinct, but uh, yeah, follow the data.
0: All right. Well, anything else that you want to talk about?
2: Well, for me, it was really frustrating that we had we were using measurements that were completely useless. And we were basically wasting the time of our operators or our lab personnel uh, to do so, because everybody believes in the cell count. Everybody believes in viability, and nobody has ever proven that those measurements or accurate enough to use them in your process. So be very critical. I'm doing some consulting with other breweries, and and they're like, well, um, what what temperature should we mash in? And like, how do you measure your temperature? And so they were doing it two different ways. And I show, look, those temperatures are three Fahrenheit off. Which one do you want me to advise on? My advice would be, Get those temperature probes first to read the same so that we can talk the same language. And So basically, go back. Uh, never trust a measurement. First proof that it's a useful measurement. If it's not a useful measurement, get rid of it. Stop doing stupid stuff. <laughs>
0: That was Peter Buchart here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you'd like to see more details about this project, check out the presentation Peter gave to District New England earlier this year. You'll find a link in the show notes or just type fermentation consistency into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. We're taking this show on the road. I'll be talking yeast with Graham Stewart, dry hopping with Tom Shellhammer, Spike yeast with Richard Priest, oxygen ingress on small candy lines with Brooke Bell, diastaticus detection with Matt Linsky, and so much more. Master Brewers Live is a brand new addition to the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. So grab your passport, get registered at nbaa.com, and join us in the Master Brewers Live studio, October 31st and November 1st in Calgary. Check out the brand new Master Brewers Podcast website. You'll find guest profiles, information about upcoming live events, and more. All at masterbrewerspodcast.com. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, and Malt Europe. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.